Hi, and welcome to a new season of the Act React podcast, where we explore improvisation through conversations with remarkable artists. I'm the host, Daniel Burkholder, a dance artist based in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the ancestral and unceded lands of the Ho-Chunk, Menominee, and Potawatomi peoples. And I'm truly excited to share with you today's conversation with Chris Aiken. It's kind of perfect to have Chris kick off this new season as he is one of the most prolific teachers and performers of improvisation in the modern, postmodern, contemporary dance field. He has thought a lot about improvisational performance and training, and we get into all of that here. This conversation is a wonderful way to set the stage for the coming season, which will be the most extensive act-react season yet. So stay tuned as lots of great artists are coming our way. Before we jump into the conversation, here's a bit about Chris. Chris Aiken is a leading international teacher and performer of dance improvisation and contact improvisation. Over the last four decades, his work has evolved through ongoing investigations of performance, composition, ecology, movement technique, the perception, and design. Chris has performed and collaborated with many renowned dance artists, including Steve Paxton, Kirsty Simpson, Nancy Stark-Smith, Peter Bingham, Andrew Harwood, Patrick Scully, and Angie Hauser, among many others. He has received numerous awards for his artistic work, including fellowships from the Guggenheim, the Bush and the Jerome Foundations, as well as commissions from the Walker Arts Center, Jacob's Pillow Dance Festival, Dance Theater Workshop, Bates Dance Festival, and the National Performers Network. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Let's begin. Well, hi, Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here, Daniel. Thank Great. you. Yeah, we've known each other for quite a while, but it's always like these like little in passing at little festivals or workshops are here. So I'm I'm excited to spend a little bit more time talking with you today. Yeah, me too. Cool. So this is kind of the question that I ask everyone to start with is like, how does improvisation show up in your life these days, either artistically, you know, personally, emerging, overlapping of the two? Um. Well, I guess uh, it is, um, it shows up in all areas of my life. Uh, I, um, I really believe that most of our lives are uh, improvised <clears throat> and within varying levels of uh, constraints. Um, so, um, but creatively, I'm, uh, I'm continually working on creating uh, pieces for the stage uh, pieces for students and um, and teaching improvisation. Um, so this uh, fall, I'm teaching a um, improvisation technique course, which is a little different than uh, when I'm teaching straight up compositional improvisation for performance. It's more tilted towards uh, movement research and the development of their physical skill. Um, but it, like in my graduate courses, I'm uh, I'm, I, I weave in a lot of improvising as well. <clears throat> That's interesting. I want to I want to kind of like talk about that class a little bit for a second, um, though it wasn't. I have some other questions I want to get to as well. But I've been really thinking lately is when I, when I'm teaching what we label as contemporary technique at our uh -huh. university, I have been thinking about like what if I'm teaching technique not to train a repertory dancer, like someone's going to go join a company, but using technique to train an improviser. Like that's the goal of the technique class is to is to teach someone how to, or, you know, build someone's skills up as an improviser, as opposed to, you know, like I've stopped like teaching phrases and like, you know, cause many technique classes end with a big phrase that you do and everyone loves that. And I've kind of moved away from that. So I'm curious about like, when you think about that improv technique class, like what's the, how do you approach that? What's the kind of things that you do in that class? Well, first, I just want to say that um, I don't just target it towards people who want to improvise. I also target it to uh, what I would, in the old days, we used to call them technical dancers. Uh, basically, you, you use the word repertory, but uh, yeah. people who are doing set choreography, because uh, from my point of view, uh, you know, I've done a fair amount of set work in my life as well, and it always felt improvised. And as I said earlier, it's just that constraints are quite narrow, and um, the work was uh, 
performed at its best when it had a kind of improvised feeling to it, even if it was said. Um, that said, uh, I think, you know, I, I teach a liberal arts college and I, um, in my technique courses, I have graduate students and undergraduate students. And I would say the, the bulk of the undergraduate students, I'm teaching them uh, <clears throat> basic uh, movement skills Movement, I would say sort of relatively basic um, movement and compositional skills woven together, but I'm really tilting it towards um, their physical intelligence rather than making pieces. Yeah. Uh, for the graduate students, it's similar, um, although um, I have them in addition to having them in this class, I also have them in a composition class. So they're kind of, they, uh, inform each other. And I would say that maybe half of them are interested in becoming uh, um, improvised performers or, or performance uh, performers who work with improvisation. Yeah. And the others, uh, they use it all the time in their creative process. Right. Yeah. Um, I've seen you mention other places, this idea of presence and um, and I'm sorry, perception, uh -huh. <laughs> um, you know, and how does that play into this? Like, how does this play into this training that you're doing? Well, you know, I, um, I one sort of way that I approach physical skill development is uh, the ability to solve problems uh, that arise in the in the course of a class or a, a performance. And these problems could be uh, both artistic or creative, but they could also just be physical. So, uh, someone is coming at me and I have to get out of their way, or I uh, suddenly have somebody's weight on my body and I have to manage that weight. And um, my, my way of teaching is uh, to try to get students to think about developing repertoires of solutions. Uh, mm. And rather than one, perfect solution that they can use. Uh, I, I teach them to approach each situation as a unique situation, because in truth that it is. Uh, my body's always changing and my environment's always changing. So if I have one solution and I can't uh, tune it to that situation, it's pretty brutal. Um, so the those solutions come about through the interaction between perception and action. Uh, so um, I maybe I have a, a situation and I have an intention to do something. As soon as I start to enact that intention, I'm getting a flood of perceptual feedback. And um, based on uh, my experience and my uh, awareness of that in that moment, I adjust, I uh, adapt uh, to meet the circumstances. And um, so for me, the, it's easy for students to um, focus on the movement uh, to um, more than the perception. And I try to say that the information you need to make that movement fit that situation and fit your body uh, is in the room and in your body. Uh, and it's your job to detect that and uh, and figure out what to do with that information. And if you're just thinking about the next thing you're gonna do, you're missing that. And so, um, and I also try to, to make them aware that perception is not just something you just turn it on and you turn it off, that you actually learn uh, over time, you become more, uh, uh, skilled as a as a perceiver, um, part of what you know. I use the term physical intelligence, and uh, part of that is knowing where to look, so to speak, uh, where to gather your information. Um, because sometimes the reason someone's not successful in what they're doing is that they're they're just not attuned to the right information. It's there, but they're not paying attention to it. Yeah. And um, and you know, there's many levels of this. Like there's like I'm, I'm moving and there's information I'm getting from my body about uh, the progress of that movement, uh, how it's affecting my organism, so to speak. Is it hurting me? Is it, uh, uh, am I using too much effort or am I using not enough? And, uh, and then I'm also noticing what other people are doing and trying to uh, 
again, just fit it together with what they're doing so that um, uh, we have the best chance to work together and collaborate and um, uh, make the, I mean, I guess I would say best informed decisions. And, yeah. uh, you know, there's no right decision. And and I just want to be clear that I, I don't think it's useful for a student or a dancer to uh, take this sort of macro perspective of that of perceiving everything. Uh, like you often see with beginning improvisers, they're often looking around like this because they're afraid they're gonna miss something. Their teacher has told them to pay attention to what's happening. And so they're keeping all the balls in the air, uh, um, the, the space ball, the collaborator ball, the uh, the audience ball in their body. Uh, it's, it's too much. And um, so you have to make choices. Uh, about what to pay attention to and when to uh, shift to something else and um, dilating yourself to the maximal sort of perceptual awareness is not a practical solution uh, for any great length of time. Yeah. Yeah. You get kind of like overwhelmed and lost pretty quickly there. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I wonder just <clears throat> one more thing about this. Like, so could you give an example, like a really concrete example of what that looks like when you're in the classroom with the students? Like what kind of exercise are you doing to help train this? Or what kind of um, framework are you saying, okay, here's some directions or some constraints or some what have you, and let's let's try this. Is there an example that you can kind of share? Uh, sure. <laughs> um, so one score that I do, uh, I call it Where's the Center? And um, I have people, um, they're, they're in lanes and, uh, one person is upstage, one person is downstage. And initially the idea is that the person, uh, downstage is trying not to be the center. And that's tricky because they're closer to the audience. And, uh, so it's very easy for them to, to kind of dominate the, in part because visually they're bigger. So, uh, you know, this is, is occluding that. And yeah. so, um, and then I'll switch roles and then I'll have them go back and I'll say, okay, um, uh, the center can shift up or down. It doesn't have to be just the downstage person, but the idea is where's the center? Like, where's the center of attention? Is it shared? Do I have it? Do you have it? And um, it's about sort of navigating uh, the sort of um, noticing where it is and playing with that uh, creatively to uh, create a performance that has dynamic change and, uh, and interest. And it's totally fine sometimes for there to be two centers, um, but um, if you are the um, a performer who is kind of um, draws a lot of attention, yeah, it becomes harder to give it to the other person. And so you have to learn how to uh, either uh, disappear or or modulate your energy so that you're you're not in the primary sort of center, and um, and maybe you have the person who likes to be in a in a not in the center, and th this comes up all the time in improvisation. Is some people love to be in the center of attention, some people would would rather not uh, be that, and um, I always say that. If, if you have someone in an ensemble who will not take the center when it comes to them, then it puts a burden on the rest of the ensemble. And um, so it doesn't mean that you have to be flamboyant or, or be make big choices that sort of uh, say, here I am. Uh, but when the, so to speak, when the ball comes to you, do you pass it right away to someone else or do you take it? And because, you know, it may be that the, if you're in a duet, that that person's tired and they they want a break, or or you're in an ensemble and the the dominant thing is losing energy, like it's it's finishing, and rather than waiting until it's it's ended and then what next is like you're you're aware oh that's that's coming down, so I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna take the space and. Um, so uh, you can see that these are related to personality uh, issues and you have to sometimes work against what is sort of your affinity. Yeah, 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 that's that's great. That's a great example, thanks. I mean, that's it's a nice concrete example that can also like really clearly as you, as you did, like can expand out to this kind of 
um, conceptual framework that you're working to think about roles. I often talk about like, oh, are you initiating something? Are you supporting something? Like what's yeah. your what's your role? And that this is another way of talking about it. Um, yeah. or even foreground, background, and all those things. It's like, just where's the center? It kind of um, gets to the to point really nicely. Yeah, and sometimes the it's really can be quite amazing when the the person who's further away is the center, uh, right. not just always taking the person who's closest to the audience right. as being the center of attention. Right. I mean, obviously, you can do things with lighting to make that happen, but it's nice if the performers have the capacity to uh, dial dial up and dial down their energy so that they can uh, you know play the game, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, and that also, it just seems like there's like a whole like space in there for developing more and more capacity to do that, right? Like yeah. first, there's probably some really obvious answers to that problem. And then as you get more experience, you can, there's more subtle ways of shifting that center. Exactly. Like, uh, so when you want to make yourself not the center, do you just turn yourself into a stationary rock? You know, like a uh, like you just curl up in a ball. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that works. Uh, but that's just one way to do it. Right. <laughs> like if you just kept some movement going that was repetitive, uh, eventually the, the audience just stops seeing it because it's just ongoing, and they start to uh, look at other things. So there's many ways to do it, and um, yeah, it's fun for them to. Um, to practice. And uh, one of the things that in my teaching that I feel imp uh, is important is that I have the students who are not performing in that score and actually all my scores, <clears throat> I, I have them sit next to someone and they're always narrating what they're seeing to each other. And I tell the performers, they're gonna talk while you're performing. Uh, that's so that they can learn what someone else is seeing and they can share because they start to realize, Wow, I didn't even notice that. It, you're you're noticing something that I'm not seeing, and it sort of starts to make them aware that, oh, I tend to look for certain things, but um, I'm not I'm missing certain things. And so when they're in the space, they have that memory because um, I really feel like your ability to be on stage or be in the performance space and have some sense of what it looks like or how the audience might experience it comes from watching yeah. um, that you have to have experience doing both and uh, talking while people are performing. I know it seems kind of sacrilegious, but I mean, when we're doing like a final showing, they don't talk, but, um, yeah. Yeah, but sure. when we're working on these skills, uh, the, the watching is such a, a critical part of this. Um, I, I feel it's just uh, much more effective if they're sharing and, and ask like, oh, what do you think is the center? Uh, and someone uh, might think they that's the center, but I think that's the center. And then they start. You start wondering. Oh, okay. I, I see where you're where you're going with that. And <clears throat> that's that's a, a great practice. I'm going to totally steal that from you um, because I feel like like often what happens is when you get to an end, whether whether it's in like a composition class or an improv class, like someone shows them, and you're like, let's talk about it, and they all stare at you like. They, they don't can't remember. Anything, they don't have anything to say because they, yeah. they, they don't have. But if they're always talking, it gives them that language to at least say, "Oh, I saw this." Yeah, uh, you know that's really wonderful. Uh, you kind of brought up the, the idea of performing, and and I definitely want to talk about this some. And earlier you mentioned constraints, and I'm really interested in what kind of constraints just to keep using that word, people use when they're going into a performative context. And, and you you did also mention is the difference between making work like the work you make on yourself and your colleagues and your collaborators and like the work you might make on students. But, um, and maybe there's a, a line you can talk about there, a difference, but, but in general, just like, how do you think of constraints when you're making performances? Well, I think, <clears throat> I think there's two ways to approach constraints. Uh, one of which is uh, from the personal uh, perspective is that uh, within each dancer, there's an element of self-direction and there is a, uh, so, you know, like when I have open 
like if I'm in a, a performance and, and there's a section where I'm free to do whatever I want or to uh, choose, make my own choices, um, I tend to be a formalist. And so I pretty quickly am uh, working with constraints that I, I just uh, I, um, create for myself. I mean, it's not like I just come up with them off the top of my head. Uh, I have a sort of rolling series of what I would call subscores, uh, practices that I'm interested in that uh, I find fruitful in my own research. And so I can activate them. Like if I feel like sometimes I don't need anything, like what's happening is so interesting and, and so full of information that I just go. Uh, but sometimes it's like, um, I feel a sense of like, uh, I want more structure to what I'm doing. And so I'll, I'll call forward something I've been working on. Um, and um, because, and, and I teach my students how to do this because um, a big part of performing uh, is coping with the performance situation. And so it's there is some element of stress. Uh, there's less, the more you do it, the, I think there's less stress, at least for me. Uh, um, and if you don't practice uh, being in that stressful situation where you know people are watching you and um, you're having to make it up on the spot, um, if you don't put yourself in that situation repeatedly, you often just resort to very stereotyped ways of responding to that stress. Uh, one of which can be that you never look at the audience. Uh, um, another uh, thing could be that you just move all the time, like you forget to be still. Uh, you're not managing the the syntax of what you're doing. You just like do stuff. Um, so, uh, trying to think of that. All right. So you were talking about constraints. So let me give you some examples because it seems pretty abstract. Yeah. Um, so one constraint that I've been working with that I really uh, have had a lot of uh, pleasure and enjoyment from doing it, both for myself and for my students, is this score that I call becoming undetermined. And so the idea of this score is that um, as you uh, get an image of, of, of an action or of a uh, something that's about to happen uh, that you you feel uh, yourself uh, launching in, into the inaction of that idea of asking yourself, how determined am I to realize this image or this intention? And can I, um, can I become less determined? It's not that I just say, you know, with many improvisers, there's this sort of uh, don't, whatever the first impulse is, don't do that, do your second or third or fourth. And um, I find that to be a bit um, uh, too blunt of an instrument. Uh, I think uh, sometimes the first choice is the best choice, um, but just asking, and, and so maybe I'm doing the thing that I imagine, but as it's as it, I'm fulfilling it, I start to, uh, look for opportunities to make it less predetermined, so to speak. And um, so that's a score that I work on. Another score uh, would be that I, I track the, the dorsal and ventral surfaces of my body and I compose with, uh, with the topography, topography of dorsal and ventral. The dorsal is the, uh, the sort of, uh, back side of my body. It's not quite just, it's it's a little bit more complex than that. But the ventral surfaces are the more vulnerable front parts of your body. And um, often, so that ventral dorsal uh, uh, proportions are useful to get a dancer thinking about um, because it gets them revealing themselves in ways that are less, because if you're afraid, you're going to just do mostly dorsal. Uh, you're gonna hide from the audience. You know, you're gonna, you're rarely gonna open up to, to for the audience to see you. So I will say, in this section, I would like you to work with proportions of dorsal and ventral. So it's pretty loose, but it's specific. Yeah, that's great. Is there, or are there any examples of like, um, 
I mean, you could give those to a group and they would be working on it together. Um, but are there any kind of more like group score constraints that you might offer? Um, sure. Clearly, um, you know, focused on like group organization or something like that. Sure. So uh, one score that I love to do, and this comes from Barbara Dilley, uh, is to call it, that she calls it finding unison. And um, basically the, 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 my understanding of the score and how I use it. And uh, so if it's different than this, uh, I apologize to Barbara. Um, but the idea is that um, you're not trying to do uh, sort of straight up flocking. Um, you are, you're noticing what's happening uh, around you and you're making choices to find unison. But as as always happens, there's turbulence in that. And you see it when birds are flocking. Some bird goes over here and then they come back. The idea is if you go away from the flock, it's uh, it's fine. It's There's nothing to be worried about. Uh, it could be that you create a new flock, uh, but it could be that when you're done with what you're doing, you just fold back in. And uh, it's about finding it rather than holding on to it. Um, another score that I do uh, is I will create uh, a, a field of people in the space who are standing and I call it a, a field of emergent gestures where they're, they're standing and uh, often uh, start a performance like this or not, not too often, but I've done this uh, a few times where they don't move through space very much. They pretty much have this idea that uh, the space around them is their laboratory and they're waiting to be moved uh, and they're they're en enacting a gesture. And that gesture doesn't have to be one movement. It could be, I'm gonna, I'm gonna um, turn around or I'm gonna go down to the floor and come back up. Uh, so it could uh, unfold in time. It doesn't have to just be one like short, yeah. you know. And um, in that score, it is not really about any one individual. It's about the whole. It's like what it looks like to watch people doing that. Yeah. So in that, I would say I don't want them interacting with each other. So even though they're right next to, they can notice each other. But I often will use the image of like you know when you're writing a letter at a cafe, and you happen to see the person next to you, and maybe you nod to them, but you don't just start co-writing the letter, uh, <laughs> or you don't write to them. You keep right. going with what you're doing. Um, but you might incorporate uh, in the letter that, oh, I saw this person and they have a cute dog and, a, and an interesting hat. You know, uh, so it's not like you have blinders on, but you are generating your own material. You're not, you're not dialoguing with someone else. Yeah, that's great. That was really helpful just to kind of, I like, you know, it's like I've been talking to all these people about improv and like hearing like concrete examples of kind of what they do I, I just found I find really helpful to like ground the more you know theoretical ideas that we're all kind of juggling with and thinking about theoretical ideas I was looking you know I was looking up a little bit about what I could find about you and some things that I your your bio that I found I'm going to kind of just this little quote that like one thing that you're interested in right now is the eco-poetic model of creativity and ethical behavior and there's a lot in there and there was, you know, more in the bio, but sure. I think this seems like really important to kind yeah. of like, I, I would love to hear more about what this is for you and what this research and interest is. Sure. Um, first I'll talk about the echo poetic uh, yeah. model, which is the, um, the ecological realm and the poetic realms are from my point of view are completely intertwined uh, in an ecological is um, the, the context uh, that we are situated within uh, both inside of our body and outside of our body and with the beings that we're uh, engaging with. And um, as, as you can imagine, the way that you um, are aware of those things and are attuning to them is through perception. Um, and I came up with that idea of uh, bringing uh, ecology and poetics together is because um, when I first started studying uh, composition, I didn't go to school for dance as an undergrad. I was an English major. Uh, so I felt like uh, at about, oh, I don't know, 30, I had been making dances and I'd never taken a composition class. 
uh, I, I made lots of dances and and rehearsed a lot and been in companies and so forth. But I thought I should take a uh, I should take a course or I should study composition. So I started reading everything I could uh, about dance composition. And in those days, there was far less written about uh, that than there is now. And I remember reading Doris Humphrey's book, uh, The Art of Making Dances, which was kind of a classic. And uh, she said at one point that she thought that the she thought of the theater or the studio as an empty space waiting to be filled with your creativity. And I always tell my students that I threw the book out the window uh, when she said that, because that's completely the opposite of how I think. Uh, I think there's there's so much going on in the space, even if it's empty. There's all the history. There's the um, the dynamic shifting of the light, the color, the the surface of the floor, and all the history that that's gone on in that room. And um, so I I felt that to be skilled as an improviser uh, or even a dance maker, um, one wanted to develop one's skills at being able to be in dialogue with what is happening uh, both inside of you and what's happening around and, and outside of you. <clears throat> um, in terms of citizenship, um, I think of improvising and performance as an opportunity for me to uh, enact my beliefs about how people should be in community and how, uh, how we uh, treat each other. Um, and because it's improvised, uh, you know, situations come up that are unpredictable. And uh, sometimes you, you make choices that are, um, that make your collaborators unhappy uh, or, or God forbid, hurt them. You have a collision or something like that. And so uh, you find yourself uh, arguing sometimes or having to say that you're sorry and, uh, or, maybe not during the performance, but afterwards. But, um, you know, I'm very aware when I'm on stage of uh, issues of um, uh, gender and race and uh, identity. And so I'm, I'm, I'm cognizant of the image of what I'm doing. And I feel a sense of responsibility that what I'm doing aligns with who I am and what I believe in. And, um, I was very inspired when I was young, uh, and still am actually, uh, by the feminist sort of manifesto that the personal is political. And so what you do in your personal life is, is a political act. And there's few things more intimate than improvising with someone on stage. Uh, it's like you're out there together. And sort of the, the cardinal rule I have, uh, if there was any rule is that when we when the performance starts, we're in it together. Like uh, nobody gets to just uh, check out. And uh, you know, if you're unhappy about something, that doesn't give you the right to just um, leave. And uh, you know, I feel a sense of responsibility, even if I'm not happy with what's going on, to hang in there, and then we'll talk about it afterwards. But to just abandon someone because I don't like what they're doing or what's happening um, does not feel responsible to me. And um, and also, I spend a lot of time when I'm coaching and directing is, uh, and this is getting at the ecology again, but it's also at the citizenry, which is, I ask them, why are you asking people to watch you? Why are you uh, creating a performance situation where they're paying money or they're devoting their time to see you perform? Uh, the assumption is that they're there is a role for them to play. And um, I feel that it's my job as a, and my responsibility to in some way, uh, let the audience know that I appreciate that they're there and that they, without them, it wouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. And how do you do that? There's a formula for how you do that. Um, but if you never look at the audience, uh, they get the sense that you, you're having your own experience. Um, I, I seek to transcend solipsism, you know, being in my own bubble. Uh, I want to be in dialogue with the audience in a way that is not asking them to like me or love me or um, respect me, but um, I'm in dialogue with with their attention. And like, so sometimes you're in a performance and you think you're the center to go back to what we were talking about earlier. Yeah. And you look up at the audience, you realize they're looking at something over there. and 
you're like, oh, they're not even looking at what I'm doing. That gives you an opportunity to make a different choice because now you're not the center. So I can just exit. I don't have to, uh, you know, finish something if if uh, the the world has already changed and right. uh, the world that I was in, uh, as wonderful as it might have been, is done and they're on to something else. And so um, I feel like attending to uh, their attention is uh, it's just a way of being responsible uh, uh, that we we need each other and um, uh, I want them to feel their agency both like I don't want to manipulate them into the, you have to look at this or you have to look at that and like I want them to feel free to look wherever they want to look and to um have their own experience, but at the same time, I'm not abdicating my uh, capacity to be have a, a relationship with them. Yeah, is that clear? Yeah, no, it is. It's great. It feels like there's like this great um, balance of between this idea of freedom and responsibility, right? Yeah. Like you, you have all this freedom within this improvisational context, even if there's some constraints or scores or scripts or structures or whatever word you like to use um and um there's also responsibility for the thing that's happening and, yeah. and to each other and um i mean that is kind of like the the ideal world right that we all feel like we are free but we also accept the responsibility of making sure everyone else is free as well yeah and you know i think for freedom is a very interesting concept uh today and forever yeah, but um is it is not just about my freedom it's about our shared freedom and sometimes my freedom might impinge on someone else's freedom and so i need to modulate that or we need to ne negotiate that um if everyone is just doing following their bliss or following their desire to be free yeah. it often is um either chaotic or uh it's it's not connected. Everyone's doing their own thing. And so, um, you know, I, I am very much inspired by the phrase uh, degrees of freedom, which it comes from Nikolai Bernstein, who's a physiologist, but um, it's, it's true both in terms of neurology, but in terms of um, as a performer, I'm modulating the degrees of freedom. Uh, how free do I allow myself to be? In certain, sometimes I'll be in a performance, especially when I'm in a bigger ensemble. Um, I find that I'm inhibiting a lot. I'm uh, I'm not generating a lot of material. I'm coordinating with what people are doing, and uh, I'm not trying to elbow people out of my way to so that I can <laughs> do my thing. Um, and obviously, when there's fewer people on stage, there is more freedom to uh, pursue your own thread, so to speak. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I th I think of that is uh, something that we need as a society is we uh, so much emphasis on freedom and so little care on how your actions impact others. So I want to be free to drill for oil on my on my property, uh, to blast music as loud as I want, whenever I want, to just do whatever you know. And the the truth is. If everyone does that, then um, it really erodes the social fabric, and uh, restraint is uh, is a skill, and it's a it's an, a com compassionate act. It's not a squelching of you as an individual. Yeah. It's about um, we can do more together if we all uh, modulate our freedom, so to speak. Yeah, that was really really beautifully said. Um... And I just love the idea of like the idea of having this responsibility to the other performers, having the responsibility to the audience. And I'm curious about your thoughts about what, because you talked about the audience can choose where to look. So they have some, again, we'll just keep using this word freedom of where mm -hmm. to put their attention, but uh -huh. what is their responsibility in the in that context as well? Because they would have what is the audience's responsibility? Yeah, like they have the freedom to 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 move their attention where they are so drawn. But what's their response? I'm just yeah. What's their responsibility? 
Yeah, I I mean, I think that their responsibilities, uh, and I use this, you know, uh, loosely in, you know, they didn't, they're not signing a contract, but yeah. that what they bring is their presence and their attention. And so if they're on their phone or they're just falling asleep, I mean, sometimes people fall asleep because they're really tired. And, but sometimes people, you know, they'll choose to sit in the front row and just take a nap. Like during performance, and I feel like that's not responsible uh, behavior. They can like stretch their legs out in the front row, right? So they, yeah, you know. that, that's not a responsible choice from my point of view. If you know you're in the front row and the performer can see you, uh, maybe don't fall asleep. Yeah. Uh, pinch yourself. Do it. You got to do this. Stay awake. Um, but so I was in a performance once where the audience started throwing things at the performers. They were throwing their programs like they were air, they folded, somebody did it and then more and more people. And I felt that that was disrespectful. I, I felt like they were just proving that they had power. And it had nothing to do with what we were doing on stage and more to do with uh, showing how uh, free they were to transgress uh, that fourth wall. And, um, so I think it's okay for audiences to talk, to yell, to laugh, to cry. Uh, you know, they're free to do a lot of different things, but um, my hope is that they're considerate that um, this person is offering something and uh, um, it's, it's good to try to give them uh, your attention during that performance, even if you don't like it. Um, yeah. You know, uh, because maybe your attention will be the thing that helps them grow from that performance, even if you didn't like it. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 right on. I mean, that's we certainly talk to our students a lot about when they watch performances, whether on video or live. It's like it's not always about whether you like it or not. It's like, what's the experience of it? And um, I was actually quick tangent in June I took 12 students to Paris for two weeks wow to camping which is this big festival for undergrad students that happened there and just coincidence Pina Bausch's company was performing in Paris at the same time wow. so we bought tickets and we all went and it was Bluebeard I don't know if you're familiar with Bluebeard but it's like rape and murders and oh and, no you know, and she's so relentless, right? She doesn't let yeah. you get off easily on these things. No. And most of the students just hated it. <laughs> of course, we were like way up in the balcony too. So we were really far away because of the cost. So they of could express their dissatisfaction without worrying too much that anyone's going to notice on stage. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, um, and it was hot because it was like 95 degrees in Paris. And of course, these old theaters barely have air conditioning and all this stuff. So it was just kind of really tough for them. And it was like talking to them about, okay, I understand that it was a really hard con. It was hard for me to watch. Like it made me uncomfortable, all this stuff. But let's like, let's broaden our view of what it is yeah. and how we can be with it and experience it and appreciate it and learn from it. Um, but that's sometimes certainly more challenging sometimes than others. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, I've walked out of performances that I just couldn't take after a while. Um, and, you know, I'll hang in there as long as I can. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's a point at which it's like, okay, I've done my time, uh, this is not getting better. And, uh, and even though this is a very famous piece or a very famous choreographer, um, this is not how I want to be spending my time. Yeah. And I, I respect that. If people, I think people, audiences should be able to boo if they want to boo. Uh, uh, I don't like them when they throw things. I think that's that's uh, that's not a good thing. But, uh, um, but you know, I'll, get, I'll give the choreographer time to try to uh, win me over, so to speak. Uh, to uh, And if I'm having difficulty, I try to, think about why am I, why is this hard for me? Um, why do I not like this? Um, and if it's, um, it's, if it's because I feel that there's a narcissism in the performing, uh, that's when I'm more likely to want to leave. Uh, yeah. When I feel like 
this isn't about an exchange between me and them. This is about them. And uh, they're saying, look at me and uh, look what I can do. And, uh, and, you know, if somebody's making an effort to try to connect, um, I, I'll, I can usually hang in there. Yeah. 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 That's, that's, a, that's probably right on for me as well. Um, so I guess one last question, like thinking about all of these kind of elements that we brought up in terms of improvising and performing and teaching and stuff like that. And um, what about this practice, like, keeps you interested in it and like sustains you like you've been doing this focus on improvisation for quite a while now. Yeah, <laughs> uh, over four decades. Yeah. Um, and what's the what's the thing that keeps this so vital in in your life? Well, I, I guess I would say there's two things uh, or two big categories of things. Uh, the, the most important thing is um, I love the relationships that I have developed through uh, making work and performing the work. Um, it's, I, it's no accident that I chose an art form that was social or interactive with uh, other people. Um, and I set my career up so that um, I could have a series of collaborators around the world who I would uh, sort of episodically connect with over the years. So I might see them once a year, twice, two or three times a year for 30 years. Um, and I might go a year where I don't see them at all. And uh, But then when we reconnect, there's this sense of... Um, uh, who are they at this point? What have they been doing? What's important to them now? And and um, I love learning about their personal lives and um, and sort of the the sharing. So that when uh, when we're dancing, I I see them as a full human being that I care about and that I know something about. So when I'm looking at them uh, as we're performing uh, and in a particular situation, I know where they're at emotionally or psychically. And um, it there's a richness to that that makes the work uh, much more than just about movement. Yeah. It's uh, it's theater. And, um, you know, I don't try to make things theatrical. They just are. It's human beings uh, performing on stage. It's inherently theatrical. And um, so for that reason, uh, that's, it has been so rewarding to have these relationships, both with my collaborators and with my students. I mean, I, I just, um, I, I, I always tell my students, if I thank you at the end of a dance, uh, it's not just because I'm being nice. It's like, I never assume that I'm gonna have endless more dances. Uh, so if I say thank you, it's like that actually meant something to me. And, um, the other thing I wanted to say is really about um, my own curiosity and my own imagination and uh, my my fascination in the research of um, perception and imagination and, and movement. Um, I uh, I don't need very much to get interested in uh, movement and um, uh, perception and imagination. It's like uh, it's endlessly fascinating. It, uh, I, here it is, I'm 62 and I still am learning things about my body. Uh, and well, obviously the bodies are, our bodies are always changing, but even things that I had years ago that maybe I hadn't researched and I discover, oh, wow, uh, the movement feels different now. And um, um, it's, I, I always tell people that, um, Improvising and dancing is the thing in life that makes me feel most alive. Mm. Um, and I like performing um, because the stakes are higher. Um, there's I, I like the focalizing effect of an audience and my and um, in the performance situation. Uh, it keeps me. Um, focused I know for the next hour uh, this is what I'm going to be doing and uh, I, it requires all of my attention and um, you know we live in a world where your attention can be scattered in so many different ways uh, just 
think about how hard it is to carve out an hour to just do one thing. Yeah, it's incredibly difficult these days, and um, dancing and improvising uh, is it's just incredibly rich and um, and there's a sense of um, the you get to build and develop relationships and you get to see yourself in relationship with others and you get to practice um, you get to change how you behave so that like if you notice oh I keep doing this thing hmm how can I change uh, I, I like what uh, I like what you're doing. Uh, your your way of relating to others, and so I I learn from others. Um, I if I was just doing solos, I wouldn't I wouldn't learn all that. Um, and I I give incredible credit to all the collaborators I've had over the years. They've taught me so much, um, and made me aware that we're all different, and uh, we can learn from each other and. Learning from someone doesn't mean you become them. You just you take something from what they're doing and you make it your own. And um, I think that's an incredible um, uh, model for being in community that we share and we help each other and um, we say we're sorry when we mess up, you know. And uh, yeah, so. yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much, Chris. That was wonderful. I, I love hearing you talk about improvisation. I always have. I remember other times, you know, having conversations or hearing you talk about it. You're always so thoughtful and um, insightful into the practice. So I really appreciate sharing this time with you this morning. Well, I feel the same way. And uh, I just have uh, loved watching you perform over the years. Uh, and, you know, you're someone that I see, you know, maybe every four or five years. And uh, the last time I saw you perform, or last couple of times I saw you perform, I was just uh, amazed at uh, how um, your movement continues to develop in, in its richness and maturity, and your uh, your compositional sensibility just keeps it. It's like um, wine; it's that's been uh, you know getting. Um, better with age so yeah well, i'm getting old. i'm definitely getting old enough to be called wine i think <laughs> yeah definitely cool well thank you so much chris well have a wonderful rest of your day all right you too bye for now bye thank you for listening to my conversation with chris aiken i'm always drawn to his conceptual frameworks and how he is able to ground them in a tangible physical practice please check out the show notes for links to chris out in the world or at least out on the web and also, please subscribe to Act React. You can find us on YouTube, Apple, and Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podbean, as well as Vimeo. I hope you're able to join me for the next couple episodes. And until then, please take care, be well, and live spontaneously.